the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. Whether you're a veteran voice actor, just starting out, or don't even know how to set a level, we're here to help you avoid the pitfalls along your voiceover path to success. The VO Meter is brought to you by Voice Actor Websites, Vocal Booth To Go, Global Voice Acting Academy, JMC Demos, and Sennheiser. The VO Meter is produced in part using Source Connect, made by source-elements.com. And now, your hosts, Paul Stefano and Sean Daly. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 64 of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. Today we're featuring a real wonderkind, as Sean would say, if he were doing the introduction, of the entertainment industry, PJ Oakland, who's been an actor since he was a child, both on camera and in voiceover and on the stage, and now he does primarily audiobooks and coaching as well. So we'll get into all those things with PJ in a little bit. But before that, we'll introduce our... VoiceOver Extra brings you the VO Meter Reference Levels. Uh, seriously, guys, that's the best you could come up with? Hey, it's your show. So as Paul mentioned, we have a lot to talk about today. I guess I'll start. So personal achievement unlocked. I was in my first broadcast cartoon. Woohoo! Uh, very excited about that. I play the Pack Rat, a new supervillain in Super Spy Ryan, which is available on Amazon Kids Plus. Uh, it was a lot of fun. You guys heard me hinting about it in, in the week's leading up to it, but I can finally talk about it now. So that's the biggest bit of news for me. I also got to do a fun uh, VR project with a wonderful client who was actually developing sort of like these simulators for people with social anxiety. So that was a super rewarding character project I got to do. What about you? That's very cool. Now, before we get into that, um, are you wearing pants? I didn't hear the zipper this morning. <laughs> Gym shorts. <laughs> Too much information. But I happen to know that Sean just finished taking a shower because we share every piece of information, apparently. But um, how are you feeling personally? Oh, good. Uh, Health-wise, I'm fine. I was a little, uh, Paul knows, I was a little under the weather today. My my allergies got hit really hard. It's been a cold, damp winter in, uh, in Washington, and I just woke up today Saturday like this, and I was like, can I have 10 minutes, please? <laughs> yeah, I had the same problem. I think it's just from being stuck indoors too much, right? I know here Definitely. it's been really cold, yeah. and we don't get out as much as we were during the spring or summer. So, yeah, I had the same problem. And I have a dog, too, and you have a cat, so I'm sure that doesn't help. Yeah. No, it had like four of them staying with me last night. Maybe that was a big part of it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, when you said that, I actually thought about doing the same thing, grabbing my, my Neil Med and blasting out the sinuses, but I guess I'll do that later. Mm-hmm. And it's Nile Med. Well, I don't know what it is. It could oh, that's be right. But, but if we were talking about the Germans, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> but anyway, congratulations on those two projects. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. What is it? Like, I'm an eight-year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have a couple of cool things going on. Uh, I just today submitted the book to ACX for approval, the latest political uh, nonfiction book I'm working on called Losing Control. And it's about the immigration reform, or lack thereof, in the U.S. over the last dec uh, several decades. And that will be coming out in about a month. It just got submitted today. And I'm working on several author-recorded audiobooks with Twin Flame Studios. I have, I think, five going right now, which is kind of making my mind go a little, wow. a little crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot, of, lot of clients, but I'm grateful for the work. And it's, it's interesting because I get to work with so many different people talking about so many different subjects. And... It is interesting to hear their story because they're almost all self-biographical, at least to an extent. They're all nonfiction books, and, and it's really interesting to hear their points of view on all these things. And that's interesting, too, since it's autobiographical, that the author trusts you to put on their own persona like that. That's really cool. Well, sorry, maybe I misspoke. These are books where they're recording their own voices. I'm, I'm just engineering oh, it. Oh, you're producing it. Got yeah, it. I'm, I'm producing it remotely while they record. So it's a little bit of live directing, a little bit of editing and, and mastering altogether. Well, they're still trusting you with the project, so... <laughs> yeah. And there's one other one we're working on for Twin Flames where we're doing an interesting sort of side project where we're inserting interviews that the author is doing with other authors that he has been influenced by into the audiobook. So that's a little interesting because the sound design evolved. So we're having four or five separate five to ten minute interviews inserted into the audiobook where, where it'll be like a live conversation that the author's having. So... That's been pretty interesting, especially because for all my sports fans out there, which I am one, one of the people that I'm working with is Pau Gasol, 
who is an NBA all-star uh, that's originally from Spain, but now lives in, in California because of his time with the Lakers and a bunch of other teams. But the interesting thing about that is what one thing one of the things I do with these clients is set them up with a remote setup so it, everything sounds consistent. So we're sending them a microphone, we're sending them a pop filter and saying, here's what you should use when we go to the session. And the one thing I made sure to tell his assistant and all the people that were working with that we, he's going to need to have a stand or some sort of shelf to put it up because he's seven foot two. <laughs> so we usually are sending blue Yeti mics, which has that pedestal stand, but that's not going to work if he puts it on a regular table and he's still six feet, five inches away from it in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to have some, some bad room tone there. <laughs> yeah. Unique challenges that, that come up in some of these situations. And then finally, I had a bit of a personal achievement as well. I don't know when it's, when it's going to air, but I just did a promo in Europe for HBO on Sky TV. So Sky is one of the, the internet, or sorry, TV providers in Europe, and a new promotion for them streaming HBO content to their customers. So I did a, a promo for that that maybe I'll see, but probably not. I probably will never <laughs> see, the, see the light of day in America. But still pretty interesting because it's the first network promo I've done. Nice. Well, now you can be um, super famous in Europe. But anyways, that's yeah. awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. So that's really all we have for our VO meter reference levels. But boy, do we have a boatload of questionable gear purchases to talk about, don't we? Yes, we do. So without further ado, let's talk about our questionable gear purchase. All right, so I'll start off with a small one. I had some tech issues a couple of weeks ago. I think you and I talked about this, where I thought my computer was dying, my my Mac Mini. It's mm -hmm. a 2012, and I started to get the beach ball of death pretty much with, with any keystroke or mouse click. So yikes! my first thought was failing hard drive, then maybe a virus or some sort of hack. So I ran antivirus software. It was still happening. And so I figured it was a hard drive. So I actually took it apart, did some surgery. It's not very easy on these 2012 model Mac, uh, Mac minis. You have to take out, take off the back, which does unscrew pretty easily, but then you have to remove the fan and uh, the connector for the hard drive. You have to take the ribbon cable from the existing hard drive, reconnect it to another hard drive, to another drive. All these tiny little torque screws. And I was having some issues because of my big fat Mediterranean fingers. So I was using... <laughs> this tweezers set that I had from a, from a screwdriver Torx set that I have. So I had to use the tweezers, holding it over the, the, the case, dropped it several times, I had to shake out the case oh, to get the screws no. out, and then use the Torx, Torx screwdriver to get it in. But I, I did manage to do it without any damage, and now I'm back up and running on the same computer with a one terabyte SSD, and I did solve all the problems. So That's awesome. Thank, yeah. thank goodness for YouTube and, and DIY videos. Well, I highly recommend, um, I meant to tell you this too, but both iFixit and, or iFixit.com and uh, MaxSales.com through OWC, they both have DIY kits for, or like upgrade kits that you can get from them that have the, the unique Mac Torque screws that you mentioned. And then sometimes you can even get like an anti-static Mac, which you're supposed to use, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually then, did watch the iFixit video. I, I already that's had... That's I was going to say. Yeah, I already had that, a Torque set from other stuff I was doing. It was probably a similar repair where I just bought the whole kit. So I have like a 72-piece Torx set um, kit that I have in my little desk next to the computer. But I did watch the iFixit video. That's exactly what I used to fix it. <laughs> Good, yeah. They have incredible tutorials both on iFixit and Mac Sales. I actually got like the whole SSD swap kit that OWC does. So like this was back with my in like 2013, I had a 2011 MacBook Air that only had 128 gigabytes storage wow. drive, and that was okay back then. So like after about a year or two, that was already full, and so I replaced it with a one terabyte and got like five years more use out of it. But unfortunately. Obviously, Apple has kind of put the clamp down on that since about your, that model that you mentioned, the 2012 Mac Mini. So if you are someone who likes to buy cheap and then upgrade later, you just have to be very careful and make sure that the, the Mac models that you're looking at are upgradable. But if you want something new, <laughs> you can t <laughs> let, me tell, let me tell you a tale, children. <laughs> So as Paul said, he's probably had the fewer questionable gear purchases this month. Let's just say, guys. Oh, not I so fast. We'll get to mine later. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We, um, I think we kind of made up for like six months of abstinence. <laughs> yep. Because um, Paul and I have almost completely overhauled our studios in the last month or two. It's kind of hilarious. Um, 
as I mentioned before, I had that animation project. And so that kind of prompted me to make some, to get an external monitor in the booth because I was working off of my iPad and that was fine, but I was worried about Wi-Fi connectivity and losing my screen mirroring over that. So I wanted a hardwire monitor. So I got that. And then I love that so much, I decided I needed another monitor for the booth. So <laughs> I got my first 4K 27 inch Dell monitor. It's glorious. Oh man, I've never had a 4K monitor before. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. Movies look great. Video games look great. Diablo 3 looks great. Love that. And for a while, I was just using my 2015 MacBook Pro to power both monitors. But in case you didn't know, that takes a lot of energy. And this thing was like, it already sounded like a jet engine, but now when it was powering the two monitors, it was just, the fans were on 24 seven and it was getting really distracting. So right around, and I had been looking to upgrade my computer for almost two years. So once Apple had made the announcements about these new M1 machines, I was like, you know what, why not? So I decided to try a sort of the mid-tier Mac Mini. It's like the 8-gigabyte Apple RAM and then the 512-gigabyte the SSD, which is the least I would recommend for a professional machine. Honestly, if you can afford one terabyte, get one terabyte. And if you could afford the extra RAM, the 16 gigabytes of RAM, get that too. More for longevity than performance, but if this is your professional machine, spending that extra $200 is going to give you that increased performance, that in increased sustained performance over a longer period of time, if you're the kind of person who likes to keep their machine for longer than three years. So figured that out. Uh, overall though, I'm really happy with the new machine. It's at least twice as powerful and twice as fast as my previous one. And I liked it so much that I already ordered a new MacBook Air with 16 gigabytes of RAM and one terabyte of storage. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, this was kind of the testing model. And then once I was satisfied with it, then I got the machine with all the upgrades I want. And to be honest, probably in a year or two, I'm going to upgrade this mini either to one with better, uh, with more storage and more RAM or the uh, the rumored Pro minis that are going to come out with like the space gray enclosure and the additional ports and the better chip and all that stuff. So as you can see, I'm it, this is funny because I'm usually not the early adopting type, but I was just so excited about these machines and I had spent the last two years looking at potential computer upgrades and I always felt like I was making a compromise. Like I had my, I was about to drop $3,000 on an iMac or a 16 inch MacBook Pro. And then I was able to use that money to buy two machines instead and like have a dedicated desktop and a dedicated laptop. So I'm really happy about this new tech. I think that's enough for now. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you're getting your, your money's worth, so to speak, at least. Yeah, definitely. And, and so for me, like, like I said, I did a lot of research. I traded in my current machine, so I only spent about $300 on the Mini. And then uh, to some people, they're like, dude, Sean, slow down. I was like, guys, it's okay. This was planned. <laughs> like, I, I just really like these new Macs. Well, good. Glad to hear it. So no mics or interfaces this month? I'm shocked. I know. Surprise, surprise. Well, that that area I'm actually really happy in. And I don't know if you can tell, but I've actually been using the Gefell today and for a lot of my recent auditions because I've been getting more character-based stuff, more animation and video games. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, like, with the 416, I definitely move around too much, and I was getting some off-axis changes in tone. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I've been using the Gefell more, and I really like it. It's it's just kind of, it's a lot less obtrusive, and I forget that it's there instead of just having this, like, rifle pointed directly at your face. <laughs> um, but anyways. Keep, I, definitely really keep the 416, it. though, because... Uh... Uh, not, I'm not sure if you're planning on punting on the 416, but definitely keep it around because I want something I want oh, to bring yeah, up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. That's um, what I'm actually using it for now is kind of my, my conferencing Zoom mic just because it is so directional and it can stay out of the frame of the camera. Because I was using the Gefell because it looked better on camera, but it, it's got a lower output and it's got, it doesn't do as well further away. So it just made more sense to, to kind of swap them. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to mention about the 416 uh, have you noticed in auditions recently, some of the bigger casting houses are putting out requirements in their auditions that say you must have, well, they don't say must, but they say, please state. Our preference is. Yeah, they say, yeah. please state your equipment on the audition, and we, our preferences are U87, uh, 416, maybe 103, but 
It's Actually, really important. Actually, no, they didn't list the 416 because they said they prefer large diaphragm condensers. Well, it depends on which 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 house we're talking about, which casting ah, company. Okay. So, yeah, some have said that. I did get one this week that was specifically 416, and I don't have the 416. I have the 415, but I think most engineers know they sound pretty much identical. So definitely keep that 416 around. Oh, yeah, that's the plan. Even if, like, I was holding out hope, because I, I think I mentioned it to some people, there was a, a Sweetwater win your wish list competition. And honestly, Sweetwater does, like, almost monthly giveaways. So if you're ever, like, I don't know, if you're a betting man like me, I just love joining contests and hoping for the best. But, <laughs> but anyways, I had put some mics and interfaces in that, like the, uh, the Rode NTG5 and the Austrian Audio OC818 because um, these were ones that were appealing to me. And even if I got, like, the NTG5, I would probably still hold on to the 416 for the rare occasions when people ask for it, like yeah. you said. I put in for that, that wish list contest, but I never won anything. Ever since I was a kid, I was the guy in the back of the, the fifth grade assembly waiting for the door prize for wh- whoever sold the most uh, socks or, or popcorn <laughs> for, the, for the, the holiday fundraiser drive, and I've never won anything. Rats. Uh, well, I don't know. I... <laughs> You guys know my track record. It's pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, we just met with Gerald Griffith this week to talk about VO Atlanta, and he's like, you can't win any more prizes, Sean. I was like, that's understandable. <laughs> that's totally fine. <laughs> hey, one other thing about the 416, I noticed I was actually talking to my wife about this. Um, on national reporting, well, even local reporting now, have you noticed that correspondents in the field are using 416s or some other s- sort of shotgun with the big foam windscreen on it so they can remain six feet away from their people that are, the people they're interviewing and still get a good sound it's oh yeah I've, I've actually seen a lot of like sort of man on the street interviews just kind of hooking it up to a digital recorder like the mixer face or mm-hmm. something like that and using it like a handheld interview mic oh definitely that but even even some broadcast correspondents like on NBC and CNN, they're 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 walking around with it noticeably as a shotgun, and I think it's the 416 in most cases, and they're just standing there and pointing it because they want to make sure they're socially distant for the pandemic. Ah, that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, so congratulations on your your new technology purchase. Um, and there's one thing I should mention. It's not complete yet, but I I did sell my booth, my whisper room, so I'm still in it now, but I'm making the move to the basement where in my house because I've been talking about it for a little while and. It just makes sense now to try and get down there and be away from all the foot traffic above. And I was, Well, isn't that going to be an issue, too? Or is there just more concrete or, like, more isolation between it? There's more isolation. When we had the basement uh, professionally finished when we moved in, it was completely completely bare. And we had some insulation put in, mostly for home theater. I wasn't even doing voiceover at that, part, at that point. But we have, like, a home theater down there. So it's already had already has some insulation built in to the, to the ceiling between... Um, the next floor. And then during the day, every one of my house is on the second floor anyway, because my wife's working in the office, my kids are doing online school. So I need to get the heck out of this floor because it's just too noisy here. It was actually quieter in the basement. It was more of an issue when I first started because I was part-time and I was always working at night. So I was trying to, I was coming home from a full day at the office and then trying to do voiceover work at dinner time and bedtime. And that was the issue because all the little feet were running around. The kids were much younger then too. So there was always too much noise in the basement, but now it should be better. So anyway, I'm looking at a couple of used options and still trying to figure out which one. I had one that I was almost positive I was going to buy, and I had set up even, like, it was in Charlotte, so I set up even the shipping quote to have someone go get it and bring it up, but it expired in between me trying to figure out the finances and exactly when I could get it done, because, as you know, you can't you can't move recording spaces when you're doing a project. So I was in the middle of this large 12-hour book that I just finished today, so now's the time when I'm ready to move, but now all the shipping companies have backed out, probably because it's the holidays. So I'll, I'll figure out when exactly it's going to happen. Thankfully, the person that bought the booth, they've already paid for this whisper room. They, they had this similar issue where they can't get it for another two weeks bef- before they can find a, a van or organize shipping. So I had some time, but basically the my feet are to the fire now to actually figure out what I'm going to do and, and get a recording space set up. Well, that's awesome. It's always exciting to get a new booth in the house. Yeah, as you know, I've done it several times. <laughs> we'll see see now how I can make it work. Awesome. Well, best of luck in a new transition. Thank you. And I'll report back, hopefully, from the new booth in the next episode. Sounds good. All right. So if that wasn't enough, that wraps up our questionable gear purchases for today. We'll get to our interview with PJ in just a second after a word from our sponsors. As a voice talent, you have to have a website. But what a hassle getting someone to do it for you. And when they finally do... 
They break or don't look right on mobile devices. They're not built for marketing and SEO. They're expensive. You have limited or no control. And it takes forever to get one built and go live. So what's the best way to get you online in no time? Go to voiceactorwebsites.com. Like our name implies, voiceactorwebsites.com just does websites for voice actors. We believe in creating fast, mobile-friendly, responsive, highly functional designs that are easy to read and easy to use. You have full control. No need to hire someone every time you want to make a change. And our upfront pricing means you know exactly what your costs are ahead of time. You can get your voiceover website going for as little as $700. So if you want your voice actor website without the hassle of complexity and dealing with too many options, go to voiceactorwebsites.com, where your VO website shouldn't be a pain in the you-know-what. How many times does this happen to you? You're listening to the radio when this commercial comes on, not unlike this one, and this guy starts talking, not unlike myself. Or maybe it's a woman that starts talking, not unlike myself, and you think to yourself, geez, I could do that. Well, mister, well, missy, you just got one step closer to realizing your dream as a voiceover artist, because now there's Global Voice Acting Academy. All the tools and straight-from-the-hip, honest information you need to get on a fast track to doing this commercial yourself. Well, not this one exactly. Classes, private coaching, webinars, home studio setup, marketing and branding help, members-only benefits like workouts, rate and negotiation advice, practice scripts, and more. All without the kind of hype you're listening to right now. Go ahead, take our jobs from us. We dare you. Speak for yourself, buddy. I like what I do. And you will, too, when you're learning your craft at Global Voice Acting Academy. Find us at globalvoiceacademy.com. Because you like to have fun. Hey, Sean, what's a vocal booth? Uh, it's an acoustically treated space to record voiceover, sing, or practice music. Okay, so then what's a vocal booth to go? An acoustically treated space to eat a cheeseburger and fries? No, of course not. Vocal Booth to Go's patented acoustic blankets, noise mitigation products, and portable booths are an effective alternative to expensive soundproofing. They're often used by vocal and voiceover professionals, engineers, and studios as an affordable soundproofing and absorption solution. Oh, I have it now. Actually, I've always had it. I've used Vocal Booth to Go's products for years, and I can't recommend them enough. Vocal Booth to Go. We make your environment quieter for less. Walgreens, because it's flu season, you live in a place with doorknobs and handrails and, you know, people. We tried booking a vacation rental on one of those other websites. They don't always tell you everything. The stars take it to the red carpet. We are back live from the red carpet. California leads the way for change in America, and so does Kamala Harris. Rated M for Mature. Claire Redfield. And who exactly are you? So, yeah, what hashtag should I use to describe a grown man in a tuxedo wrestling a goat? Prior to 1933, many of them belonged to a variety of political parties that were now outlawed in Germany. This is the story of how Q got curly. Quinn was crazy about curls. Curly fries, curly straws, curly-haired dogs. Hey, Jay Michael here. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter Podcast. It's one of my favorites. If you're looking for a great demo like the ones you just heard, check out jmcdemos.com for more information. Welcome back, everybody. We're so pleased to be joined by a man who is a multiple Audi Award winner, Odyssey Award winner, multiple Earphones Award winner, and multiple Voice Arts Award winner. P.J. Oakland's work behind the microphone began in 1987 as a young voice actor with many commercials and promos. Since then, he has lent his diverse talents to virtually every voiceover genre. Most notably, he is a widely acclaimed and record-setting audiobook narrator with hundreds of fiction and non-fiction titles to his credit. P.J.'s work is enhanced by his mastery of accents, distinctive characters, and versatility, as well as his proficiency with English, French, Italian, German, and Mandarin. He is also the founder of Dr. Dialect and co-founder of the Dion Institute of Voice Artistry. Welcome, PJ. Hey, thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, PJ, as some of our listeners may know, you've been acting on screen, on stage, and behind the mic since childhood. Tell us how you got started. How I got started acting? Uh, wow. Uh, it's a, I have to give you the abridged version because I'm sure you have other things to ask me. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Uh, according Tell to my us mom. Your whole life story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it all began. Uh, I, uh, my mom tells me I was four 
when I pointed at the TV and said, I want to do that. And uh, I believe her because it sounds like something I'd say. And I tried and tried and tried to convince her to let me. Now, there's a funny thing about this, actually. There's a... uh, a rather uh, famous uh, actress who grew up. Now, we, we grew up in a, a relatively modest town on Long Island, uh, but there was a famous actress who lived across the street or at least grew up across the street from us. And I won't mention her name because in, in recent days, she's become more infamous than famous. But she um, uh, she was very successful. And my mom saw what her mom went through of the commuting into the city, into New York City, like constantly and all that work. And my mom was the antithesis of a stage mom. Uh, she really just didn't want me to do it. So finally, I convinced her and she took me to this open call sort of thing, uh, somewhat open, I mean, appointment, but with a manager who was apparently very, very, very picky, didn't sign anybody and would see, you know, like a whole day of, of young actors and maybe sign one or two or whatever. Uh, so we did that. And she thought, OK, we'll do this and then he'll get it out of his system and then stop bothering me. And then uh, the guy wound up signing me. And in my first couple of years in the business, I wound up with like 25 different national commercials running. And I hit pretty quickly in that regard. So that gave me a little bit of uh, play with agents. We could freelance back then. So I had agents calling my manager and, you know, rushing to get me in on stuff. It was a, a real luxury. I mean, I was so lucky out of the gate. It was just a lot of right place, right time stuff. And I was able to use that commercial success to parlay into film and TV and stage. I was uh, working for the legendary Joseph Papp, the New York Shakespeare Festival, when I was still a young teenager. And um, uh, yeah, it all just kind of went from there. VO was always part of that. And then, you know, big movies, a few of those came along. And and then audiobooks much, much later. And that's now sort of the mainstay of my career. So anyway, in a nutshell, I guess that's that's pretty much how I got my start. So that's actually... Leading to our next question, you are doing primarily audiobooks now. When did you make that transition and why? Yeah, great question. Well, the when, that's easier a little bit than the why. The when, I guess, goes back to, I want to say 2011. Forgive me for not being super precise on that, <laughs> but I think it was 2011. I was doing a, a Shakespeare production in Los Angeles. Uh, the legendary Bob and Deborah Dion of Dion Audio, based in Los Angeles, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, independent audiobook production houses in the industry, they would find actors going to theater. And uh, a friend in the cast was active in audiobooks, something I had wanted to do for ages, thought I'd be good at, seemed to be a way of using all my talents and skills in one sort of craft, and I thought it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, so I would talk with her a little bit about that. And she said, you know, you really should meet Bob and Deb and they're going to come to the show, actually. And that's how they would find audiobook narrators, because a lot of things about stage work, other than reaching the back row and projecting uh, the other skills involved in stage really come in handy for audiobooks, playing different characters, handling complicated text, yada, yada. So uh, she said they'd be attending and made a point of, you know, and they made a point of meeting me. In the first couple of minutes of that production, without going into too much detail, I spoke seven different languages in like one minute in (laughs) rapid fire and these, you know, this quick, quick changing characters and all that. And they they thought, you know, I'd be perfect for audiobooks with my skills. So I went in and auditioned for them shortly thereafter. Next thing I knew, I was doing audiobooks pretty regularly. So that's how I got started in audiobooks specifically. The why, I guess here's the, the easiest answer for that. I've had a lot of what you might call big or big-ish breaks in my career, but after every one, thinking that, oh, this is great, I did this big movie, I was submitted for Academy Award nomination, this will be awesome, I can write my own ticket, they'll just be sending me offers. Yeah, not. Uh, That just never happened, and after every quote-unquote big break, I was hoofing it, I was on the streets, I mean, I was a series regular, and uh, uh, several times cast as a series regular on, on shows. Uh, one that went that we did 26 episodes and not long after I couldn't buy a job and I was back waiting tables. So uh, these major things, these huge career shifts where you think I'm set, I was never set. So what I've said publicly many times about this is uh, people have asked me, you know, what, what do audiobooks mean to you? I say, well, here's the deal. Bottom line is it wasn't until audiobooks that I got to be a steadily under union contract working actor every day that I want to be. And to me, that is an incredibly profound statement because I've been acting now for 35 years professionally, but it wasn't until audiobooks that I could really call myself a full-time working actor, earning a really, really solid living and 
getting jobs, you know, on an offer basis most of the time. I still audition for stuff here and there, but most of the work I get is on an offer basis. I stay working as much as I want, and I'm so grateful for that. And it's also so incredibly rare, you know, to be in that kind of position as a working actor. So for that, I am eternally grateful to the audiobook industry because it's it's given me that opportunity. And I still do on-camera work when it comes along. I just, right before the uh, the COVID lockdown, in fact, I, I had a major supporting role in an independent feature that we shot here in Los Angeles that was like right in February. Um, so things do still come along, but for a long time, it hasn't been at the volume that I could say, yeah, I go from project to project on camera, on stage, and so on. Audiobooks I do. So that's the why. That is too cool. I mean, you can't put a price on stability, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and it and it, it's even more than that, right? It's not just the stability; it's the it's the satisfaction of getting to do, you know, your craft. You know, even even you consider the the, the payment side of it. That that definitely goes into the stability. But the fact that you get you get to do this work is such a big deal to me. You know, when I I don't have to ask permission or I don't have all these gatekeepers or you know, worried my manager or my agents aren't getting me auditions or why is the industry so slow or, you know, why can't I buy a job and all those ups and downs you experience as an actor. And, you know, really, it just comes back to that same sort of one liner. It wasn't until audiobooks that I get to do it every day that I want to. And that's that's such a big deal to me. Very cool. Well, focusing on that, you have a skill that's not necessarily a requirement for an audiobook narrator, but one I'm always happy to see, and that is this incredible facility with languages and accents. Can you talk about that? How did you come to develop that ability? Well, I I became, and you know, so many of us in the entertainment industry become these multi-hyphenates, right? You find these different <laughs> things you're good at, and you just you do whatever you do uh, to get work. And accents have been a big part of my career, even since I was, you know, a little kid. You know, doing impressions, but definitely doing accents from way back as far as I can remember. Another interesting side of that is I was born and raised in New York, as I mentioned, Long Island. And if you look at my early acting work, I had a really, really heavy New York accent <laughs> up until my mid to late teens. So I'm living proof that even past puberty, which is kind of around the time scientifically your brain hardwires your accent, um, from an accent reduction standpoint, you actually can lose your accent after that age. But it's very, very rare to do that. But I was self-taught in that regard. So I've always had a facility for the linguistic side of things. And uh, it, like I say, it's been a big part of my career. So I became a professional dialect coach for the industry more than a decade ago now. And that's uh, that's been a big part of the career. You know, just a, again, another one of those hyphens. So that was sort of in place. Yeah, the other languages kind of went hand in hand with that. Some of it is, you know, university classes. Some of it's on my own. The Mandarin is especially weird. I was doing events in China <laughs> where I was, you know, pr doing the presentations entirely in Mandarin, which scored me a lot of points over there. You know, things like that. It's Most of it is, is self-taught or, as I say, you know, uh, classes, you know, university classes and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it's it's funny. It's just always been a part of my career. Little did I know it would become one of the hats I would wear independently as a uh, as a dialect coach for film, TV, for voiceover, for other narrators and so on. Now, I do know several colleagues that have gone to you for, for coaching for audiobooks. Do you also coach stage and screen actors on, on accents? I do. Yeah, I do. I don't do it, uh, I, or I should say, let me put it this way, I don't pursue it for on camera in a big way because I don't have the time. So sometimes, you know, a production company will come to me, and if you're going to be an on-set dialect coach for a major production, I've done that a few times, but it really takes you, you know, off the grid. Uh, if you're doing that, you know, you're working crew hours basically on a on a film shoot and I could be gone for weeks, you know, just working on that project. Mm. And it takes me away from all the other stuff that I prefer. So I don't really take on or pursue that much of that sort of stuff. Um, but I do, you know, um, occasionally like, uh, you know, recent ones I did the uh, I don't know if you remember the Air Bud movies. There's Air Bud Entertainment. I have three um, so kids, PJ. I've seen all the Air Bud movies. <laughs> you have? Okay, good. Well, I was a dialect coach on a bunch of those for the, uh, for the Air Bud Entertainment folks, you know, the Pup Star movies uh -huh. and so on. And those are easier to take on because they're VO in studio. Um, so I can go in and, you know, do uh, uh, shorter s stints with them, essentially. Stage productions, other feature films, some TV stuff. I was a dialect coach on the TV series Once Upon a Time. 
uh, for ABC, other things like that. Yeah, uh, I guess the, the biggest one that is really, really fun for me uh, is I'm the official dialect coach for Universal Studios and more specifically the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Um, so that's a really fun one because as someone pointed out to me a couple of years ago, they said, you do realize you're one of the only people in the history of the world who can literally say you teach at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm going to use that. That is very cool. You're so, uh, coach. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's a blast. I mean, I've got at Universal Studios Hollywood, even though there hasn't been a Universal Studios Hollywood in 2020, uh, thanks to the world at the moment. But uh, I've got a cast of, I guess it's upwards of 60 over there, and we're doing all different English accents and whatnot on a regular basis. So, Stuff like that is very, very fun. And again, manageable from a time standpoint because, you know, it's a sort of contract gig. I'm not there all the time and I still get to do all the other stuff. That's fantastic. Well, Sean, since I stole, I jumped in with an off the the books question. Why don't you take the next one? Paul, shameful, shameful. (laughs) So we know that you, you mentioned that audiobooks is your primary genre right now, but what are some of your other favorite genres to work in? I love to work in everything. No joke. I mean, I've, I've never really done anything like e-learning. And the only promo stuff I ever did was really when I was younger. I did some like network promo stuff when I was a kid. But when I get the opportunities, uh, I have a little bit of animation stuff out there, um, video game stuff. When those come along, I love them. It just changes things up. It's like how I said earlier about doing film. You know, I definitely don't turn that stuff down. It's just a matter of the availability. But a funny thing about the VO world, as I'm sure you guys know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, there's a real niche aspect to each different discipline in VO. You build yourself up and you create a reputation. Um, You build relationships. You cultivate those relationships. So I've spent so much time over this last decade or so building those relationships in audiobooks that I don't really have the name in the other disciplines that I have in audiobooks. So it's uh, that that means a lot. You know, if you don't have if you're not established in that way, just because you might be, quote unquote, big in one field might not mean anything in the others. So that's kind of where I stand with all of it. But I'm always happy to do uh, whatever comes along. I just I love working as do we all. We like eating, too. (laughs) (laughs) So our listeners know that we're unabashed tech nerds. I'm wondering, do you have a home studio? And if you do, can you tell us about it? And then two-parter, how much of your work is done at home versus in a professional studio? Sure, yeah. I absolutely have a home studio in the audiobook world, especially nowadays. It's totally essential. But I've done about, I've narrated about 450 books at this point. And I want to say it's got to be probably 350 of those that I've done in my home studio over the years. Um, so I'll take you through uh, what, we're, what we've got here. Uh, I'm in awesome. it as we speak. I have a vocalbooth.com booth. I also endorse them. I have a relationship with those guys because I do so much teaching in the industry that I love to endorse their products and, um, and send people their way. They're great booths, you know, made here in America. They're based in Oregon. And I upgraded at one point there. I had a flood in my office. Uh, we had some amazing rains. Uh, This is a couple of years ago in LA. And the one room in our house, our roof failed, was my office where Hmm. my booth is. And I I had to disassemble the booth, take it down. It was a big, uh, just such a fiasco. I'm thinking, wow, it's going to be so much work. Rebuild the office. It had to be gutted, um, you know, replace all the drywall and everything. And then when the work is done, you kind of just put Humpty Dumpty back together again and you're you're right back where you were. And I thought, wow, so much stuff. And I, I want to make lemonade out of the lemons here. What can I do? So I used that opportunity to upgrade the booth to their Platinum Plus. And I got to tell you, it was like the greatest thing I ever did, because even though I'm up in the hills in Los Angeles, we get private jet traffic depending on the uh, the patterns. So that would be kind of crazy with the old booth. I'd hear them and I find myself, even though you just sort of do it unconsciously, you're punching yourself in and pro tools and stop the recording. But I realized I must be doing this a hundred times a day, if not more, and other outside noises, maybe a truck drives by or what have you. The Platinum Plus added a new entire uh, set of walls, so doubled up on everything. And then additionally, we talked about, and this was a new thing for those guys at the time, so I was a bit of a guinea pig, but we put in an extra layer of mass-loaded vinyl. You guys know what that is? Yeah, I actually had some of that in my studio. Oh, my God. It's a wonder material. It's amazing. So since I did that, it was the greatest thing ever. It was this the the whole flood and office damage wound up being a blessing in disguise because since I did that, 
I don't stop for outside noises like hardly ever. It was so worthwhile. So now that's that's the booth. I uh, use uh, Pro Tools as my DAW. I recently uh, got an Apollo uh, as my interface. I've been on an AT4040 for over 10 years, and I, I kind of just refuse to change it. I don't, uh, it's just, it's, it works for me. I don't know, maybe one day I will. And it's like I say to a lot of students, you know, be careful about over-purchasing a home studio mic because it might end up hearing things you don't want it to hear. Uh-huh. So Absolutely. I, I've been happy for a long time, and I haven't changed it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the rest is, you know, just your standard stuff. And then what was the other question? It was, do oh, I have how, a home studio? And I think you already answered and, it, but yeah, the percentage. Yeah, and the ratio of how much is done in that versus an external one. So oh, yeah. you did answer. So Good. Well, being um, in L.A., I'll just add, in case anybody's interested, if you're in the major markets, there are big studios to go to, like Penguin Random House, for example, one of the big five publishers. They have their own studios, and they do full production. Um, so in a non-COVID time, I go into PRH and record books there. I mentioned Dion Audio earlier. They're pretty close to me. So once in a while, they'll have a book. And I I might even have the option, hey, do you want to do this one at home or do you want to come in and have an engineer? And I enjoy having an engineer. When I first started, it was probably my first, had to be my first 50 books I did in studio with an engineer. So, um, but ever since then, upwards, well above 90% have been at home. So when you're in New York or L.A., um, the other markets where audiobook publishers and producers are located, there's more opportunity to go in. But since this work is done nationwide, uh, the vast majority of the work is done in home studios. Yeah, I highly recommend talent use in safer times an external studio just to get, I mean, there's such wonderful spaces to be in, right? So and then true. you just get to act. Exactly. <laughs> like, You're um, so right. You know, and let me say something about that. The There is a lot to be said about when you are in a home studio environment doing your production audio at home, not just auditions, but really producing at home, there is something to be said for the fact that you have to allocate a certain amount of conscious or unconscious brain power to things other than acting. And that is just by nature, by definition, it's a detriment. And of course, we want to master those things to the best of our ability so we can then forget about them to the best of our ability and get back to the honesty of being in the moment and you know what amounts to really good acting. And I often liken that to the other things we have to do in other acting disciplines, like if you're on a film and you have to hit your marks or you have to memorize your lines or you have to play a scene with a completely fake eyeline. None of these things, I mean, they're all the antitheses of honesty and we have to master them so we can then forget about them. And I often draw that analogy with what we do in self-engineering at home. You know, you have to do these things like punch yourself in, control your DAW, think about your mic proximity, yada, yada. And none of those have anything to do with being in the moment and being a good actor, but they are skills we have to master and then forget about. Thank you for that explanation. And based on that explanation, I'm kind of answering my own question, but you also do coaching. How did that come about? <laughs> <laughs> that's hat. That's sort of hat number three, I guess. Um, so that's uh, well, it goes along with the with the dialect coaching. But yeah, uh, in especially for audiobook narrators, but across the board for performance for dialect, I I have a few sort of set programs I'm known for, like my character voice toolbox and how to be your own dialect coach or things I, I do out there. Uh, I speak at a lot of conferences in VO, you know, VO Atlanta, APAC for audiobooks, a few things with different voiceover uh, instruction facilities around the country, a few universities as well. How it came about is, um, I guess that the dialect coaching was the intro to it because I had already been teaching for a few years. And I just had more and more people coming to me to expand on that. Uh, So not just coming to me for an accent, but, uh, you know, building their character voice abilities. And then it became you know, can we work on my performance? I need to level up here or start to get in touch with the bigger players in the industry. How do I get to the next level? And then I guess another major catalyst in that was um, talked about Dion Audio. And uh, I was very close with Deborah and Bob, and we lost Bob to ALS a few years ago. And one of Bob's dreams was to start an audiobook institute, essentially, to teach people the, the craft of audiobooks. So before Bob passed, Deb and I got together and became co-founders of the Dion Institute in Bob's honor. And we, um, we put that together, and it's at the, uh, the Dion's Northridge studio facility. Uh, we set it up there, and um, I started teaching basically all of the classes there. We had a few other things we tried out, and it's been quite a few years now. So we still, we still do that. Now this year, we've moved things online. 
Uh, we do a masterclass series where I invite um, some of the biggest names in casting and producing in the audiobook industry, and all the attendees get to read a piece. So it's uh, it really becomes this wonderful interactive thing where you you learn from everyone else, but you get to read and you get feedback from both me and whoever the special guest is. They direct during the piece, and then we provide feed. We both provide feedback. Uh, so we do that kind of stuff ongoing, and then I do special presentations, as I mentioned, through uh, under my doctor dialect shingle, like the uh, character voice toolbox and how to be your own dialect coach. So it just built over the years, and people keep asking me to do it, so I keep doing it. Wonderful. And we're grateful that you do. Thank you. So along those lines, a lot of our listeners, I think Sean mentioned earlier, are newbies, quote-unquote, people that are new to the business or looking to get into the business. What would you recommend to someone who's just looking to get into audiobooks, whether they're doing some other voiceover genre or completely new to voice acting in general? Yeah, uh, a great, great, great question. A lot of people want to, especially now that more things are happening at home and people are looking for opportunities. So, yeah, we hear hear this question a lot. I, I say... Two things. You get a lot of a lot of answers to this question, but I think the best way I can put it is I always start off by telling everybody, organize in this way. I want you to think of it as two different buckets. You've got the craft bucket and you've got the business bucket. And you can't really become successful unless you have both. You could spend 10 years in acting class and become an amazing actor. But if you don't know the first thing about the business bucket, what are you going to do with that? You don't know anyone. You don't have the materials that you need to market yourself and put yourself out there. Maybe you don't have the communication skills. Maybe you don't network well and meet the people who can actually hire you. You can be an amazing actor, but if no one knows you exist and you don't put that into effect from the business side, it doesn't amount to a whole lot, right? Same thing goes for the other side. You can be an incredible networker and marketer and have all the tools, but if you're not you haven't developed the craft, that also doesn't add up to much. So I look at this, it's like when I'm teaching accents and I talk about placement versus sound changes. And I, I do a demonstration on this that I'll spare you right now. But when I talk about that, I say each side is worth 50%. You can have sound changes mastered, amazing, right? But if you don't know about placement, you're not going to sell the accent. And the same goes, you know, vice versa. So each one is worth 50%. If you think of it in that way, then you need some combination of the two to get a passing grade. And I say the same thing about this, what we're talking about now in terms of breaking into anything. You've got the 50% on the craft side and the 50% on the business side. So you need some combination of the two to really get that passing grade. So on the business side, to review briefly for, as you mentioned, if you've got newbies out there, you've got to work toward getting great samples right? This is the, the equivalent, the audiobook equivalent of, um, of a demo, you know, that you might use in other uh, disciplines, like, you know, your interactive demo for video games and whatnot. You want individual samples. Uh, so you've got to work toward creating those, making sure they're good, having them on a website or SoundCloud, a place you can send people, having the home studio set up, being up to speed with how we record, you know, the punch and roll process, making sure you've got all the equipment, and then building the relationships with the people who can actually hire you, right? That's all a basic overview of the things you want on the business side. On the craft side, developing the craft of what is it to narrate an audiobook? It's nothing like animation. It's nothing like video games. It's nothing like commercials. It's acting like all of those. They all have that in common, but in a very different way. It's quite a different skill set. It's remarkable how different it is. You're portraying the entire cast. Your pacing and how you handle the material is critically important. How you make clear for the listener what it looks like on the page, if you will. Conveying the author's tone, the author's intent, understanding different writing styles. You know, is this filtered through one character's POV? And that informs how you might, you know, what sort of emotion you might bring to the narrative, not just the dialogue, but that all important narrative. So developing that craft represents that other side. You put them together and then all of a sudden those samples sound great. You've got the good website, you know, the people to send it to and you say, hey, I've got my new samples ready. I'd love to work with you guys at some point. And that's how it comes together. And then you can hopefully start getting work in the industry. That's about as well as I can do in the sort of two or three minute overview uh, for someone who is really, really just starting out. And by the way, I just want to grab one thing you said about breaking in. There is no breaking in in the audiobook industry. It takes years in most cases to get up to speed, to meet people, to get your samples out there. So an overnight success 
like yourself, took 36 years in the making, correct? <laughs> in, in, in a sense, but but I tell you, if if you're good and you you develop the skills, and again, you develop the know-how on the business side, there are so many. It's a very welcoming industry, and because it's not typical Hollywood, that's a huge boon to anybody who wants to be a part of this. If you're a nice, good person who communicates well and you're doing a good job, people want to work with you. It's very welcoming. Um, You don't really have the gatekeepers. We don't really use agents. I mean, unless you're a celebrity, you know, unless it's about a publisher wants to get Reese Witherspoon to narrate Go Set a Watchman, that obviously those types of things are going to go through an agent. But uh, but for the rest of us mere mortals, uh, the vast majority of this work is done directly. And for me, I got to tell you, it's one of my favorite things about the audiobook industry, because no longer do you have that feeling of, oh, is my is my manager doing anything for me? I mean, I, I hear about these breakdowns and I'm not getting the auditions and you don't know you're in the dark. There's gatekeepers in this world. You are communicating and you're cultivating relationships directly with the people who are in a position to give you work. To me, that is a huge advantage because I, I have developed the skills to communicate and build those relationships. That served me really well. I often say to people, you know, I, I've been an actor for 35 years. I think I've been a businessman for 25. And that really makes a big difference. You know, if if you present yourself as the kind of person who they want to work with and then you prove yourself as reliable and you you say what you mean and you mean what you say and you, you do the job well, it's not just about getting that first job. It's about building that relationship. So that publisher or that producer comes back to you for hundreds of more jobs. That's what the the building the business side of it is all about. Wonderful. I think we're going to have to just cut that response to its own little thing so people can just return to it again and again. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, I so, appreciate that. Before we let you go, and since you have like so many wonderful insights into the audiobook industry, where do you see the future of audiobooks? Oh, wow. That's, that, there's a, that's a deep question. One thing's for sure. The audiobook industry has been building double-digit double, double digit growth year over year for the past quite a few number of years at this point. So it's just been booming more and more. And I'm sure 2020 is going to add to that because of everything that's going on. You know, the, the desire for... Uh, easy access entertainment that you can have on your phone with an app and a pair of uh, AirPods or what have you. So um, so the growth is there and the interest, the audience interest in the product is there. So it is a growing industry for sure. So that that's great news for everybody involved. Other aspects of it, if you get deeper and things we don't have the time for on this show, but there's talk about AI, how that's going to start to in- influence the industry. Will certain producers move over to artificially generated uh, voices? And if so, how will that affect the industry? You know, how, how much will that be used? Will it involve licensed voices by voice actors and people who are known in the industry? Will it cut a lot of people out of the running? Will it be used for nonfiction books only because it'll be harder to generate something very realistic for fiction or who knows? All of that stuff is emerging and we don't know where it's headed. On the performance side of things, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there as well. And I talk about this in my coaching. When I am teaching take it to the bank, fact-based information, really objective kind of stuff about how the business works or my character voice toolbox, that's, you know, science or fact-based things that it's very objective. There's no disputing it. But whenever I teach anything that crosses into performance, I always tell everybody, and it's important me to say this because of how long I've been in the industry, that you've got to understand this is much more subjective. And you've got to be able to filter. I'm not saying don't go in with an open mind. And if a coach is giving you something, try to apply it, try to understand it and use it. Clearly, it means something to them. But don't ever let yourself get ruined by someone whose opinion may or may not be right, because it is an opinion, right? With that in mind, I also make this point, and here's what I mean about the future. At some point, performances change. How I narrate in this uh, you know, past decade or whatever it is, is different from an audiobook you might pick up that was produced in the late 80s, let's say. You know, the art of audiobook narration has changed. I'm on the end of the spectrum where I dive completely into characters. You know, I, I have a philosophy, a three-word philosophy that I'm always spreading around. I say, commit, don't comment. 
And I try to live by that. So when I'm playing these characters, I am fully committed and I don't do this arm's length thing where I'm outside with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge commenting on it because it might be something uncomfortable or different or weird. So with that in mind, there's already a shift in audiobook performance that we've seen. But I try to keep that open mind and say to my students, you might be the person who does things in a way we've never thought of before. You know, on film, Marlon Brando introduced a new style of realism that wasn't really around prior to that. Watch a classic movie from the 40s or the 50s, and you, you, I'm sure you can, a few come to mind and you think, wow, people acted so much differently back then. Watch a movie from the early 80s and the same thing. It's like, wow, this seems so over the top. It's so different from the realism we have now. Okay, well, if we know that, don't we think that maybe 20 or 30 years from now, we won't be recognizing the new style compared to today. So I really, I'm always fascinated by that. And I think, you know, it's going to be the visionaries who bring to the table that those paradigm shifts in how we approach different disciplines of work. So I know that's a, a little bit more of an esoteric way of answering your question, but it's the, that's the part of the answer that excites me the most. It's going to change. And I'm excited to be around the people who are going to bring that change about. Not at all. I didn't. That, that was awesome to listen to because I mean, it got my me cogitating about a couple of things. Because I'm constantly telling newer actors that they need to find ways to take ownership of their performances. Bingo. That's like right. I, like any coach you work with, they are just providing you with tips, tools, and tricks. Right? What you use them in a way that's meaningful to you. That's what you need to figure out. I love that. Yeah. Be original, you know, and it's that that originality that keeps moving stuff forward. It's why we won't recognize performances 30 years from now and say, wow, things were so different in 2020. You know, yeah, and it's funny because people that I work with now, I mean, they still try to mimic styles from 20 years ago. They don't necessarily have a sense of the current one, let right. alone the future ones that might become popular. Exactly right. Yeah, you got to stay on top of that in every discipline. Don't forget. I mean, look at look at animation acting, right? There's another perfect example. I was talking about film, but bring it back to VO and look at animation. You know, we don't see you think of things like, I mean, paradigm shifts in animation, maybe something like Ren and Stimpy, right? You know, these moments where it was like, whoa, this is different. No one's done this before. And now you see even animation geared toward very, very young audiences that's like unrecognizable compared to the stuff I watched on Saturday mornings in the 80s, you know, so those changes really do happen. And your point is very, very well made. You have to be as an actor on top of those, because when you do your demos and you're out there trying to get work, don't model it on something that a casting director or an agent listens to today and says, boy, this person is like, they're stuck in a different era. Have they not watched what's on Adult Swim? You know, I mean, it's a completely, <laughs> completely different environment. And you have to stay on top of that. Great if you can create the next environment. But at the very least, you've got to be aware of the styles and, you know, the, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will, of uh, the current age. Well, PJ, 30 years from now is a long time for you and me. A little less for Sean. <laughs> He'll probably still be around. But here's to us still be doing this then. I, I will absolutely, uh, next cocktail I grab, which hopefully is very, very soon in my future, I will toast to that indeed, Paul. Well, thanks for being here on the show. Before you go, how can people find you if they want to work with you? Well, uh, from a coaching standpoint, my website is drdialect.com, so drdialect.com, and you can find information on there. Uh, my cell phone is on there. Um, don't abuse it, but it's there. I don't mind people contacting me, texting, email. My email address is on there, contact forms. Uh, on the acting side of thing, if you want to learn more about me, uh, pjoakland.com, just my full name.com. So those are my two main websites, deoninstitute.com, D-E-Y-A-N, institute.com is where you can find out about the masterclass series we do the uh, upcoming online version of the uh, audiobook introductory intensive uh, if you're looking to break in that's a uh, action-packed like all the information i wish i had when i started so that's one of the classes we do so that stuff i do through uh, dion institute as i mentioned so that's the website for that and then you know social pretty much all my social if you want to follow me or get in touch feel free i love to hear from everybody um it's all pretty much at pj oakland so you know twitter insta all that stuff awesome well pj thanks so much it's been an absolute pleasure it's a pleasure to be with you guys i appreciate you asking me to come on and uh you're you're lots of fun to talk to and uh, uh I, I appreciate it thank you 
Thanks again to PJ for joining us. I've wanted to have PJ on for a long time. We met three years ago now at Bio Atlanta and instantly had a connection. I knew it's someone I wanted to talk to on the podcast. I don't know why I waited so long. He's he's got so much, such, has such a great background and so much to say about the industry. He's just sort of like a breath of fresh air. And he's so accessible. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> yeah, he was a super friendly and, and charming to talk to. It was great having you on, PJ, if you're listening. Well, that wraps up this episode of the VO Meter. Measuring your voice over progress. Up next, we have another audiobook narrator, Hilary Huber. And what's going on after that, Paul? After that, we have Byron Wagner, who just recently completed a live reading of White Fang for a Story Light podcast. And we'll be interested to hear what he had to say about that experience and how Story Light is actually going to be doing more of these types of live readings in the future. Awesome. Really looking forward to that one. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the VO Meter. To follow along, visit us at www.vometer.com. We'd also love to hear your comments or suggestions for the show. Or if you have a questionable gear purchase, tell us all about it on our Facebook page or on Twitter at the VO Meter. 